0: You have the handout. If you don't have the handout, please get one. It will be important for you to have it in your hand. Uh, There are extras there at the back of the room. Shall we begin with prayer? Our Father, we rejoice in your inspired word. We rejoice in your inspired prophetic word. And we rejoice in your servant Daniel. Who directs us not only to the end of the times, but also directs us to the one who is outside of time, to the Lord Jesus, your Son, and to a kingdom that endures beyond time. We thank you for this opportunity to think about this profound work. we ask your blessing upon our thinking. And our teaching this evening, in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked backward, backward to the historical context of the book of Daniel. The history of the Gentile nations as the backdrop to Daniel's own biography and his prophecy we watched Assyria spiral downward and disappear from history with the rise of Babylon and her nondescript king Nabopolassar. In her death throes, the Assyrian beast took flight westward to Haran, where she entered an alliance of convenience with her former hated enemy Egypt but desperate times require desperate measures. Egypt and remnant Assyria would face off with upstart Babylonia. In two monumental clashes at Haran and Carchemish, one in 609 BC, the other in 605 BC, Egypt's Pharaoh Nico was battered, bested and beaten by the army of Babylon, Nabopolassar, and Nebuchadnezzar. Following the 605 B.C. debacle, Nebuchadnezzar pursued the Egyptian Pharaoh and his army south through Hathi land and put the nation of Judah with its capital at Jerusalem under siege. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, was reduced to tribute. Daniel and hundred of others were carried off captive to Babylon, the vanguard of yet two more sieges of a foolish and stubborn Judah and Jerusalem. Jehoiakim's folly in trusting Egypt to throw off the Babylonian suzerainty in 597 BC brought the army of Nebuchadnezzar to Jerusalem for the second time. Ezekiel and thousands of others were herded off to exile by the river Kibar. And Jehoiakim's successor, King Jehoiakim, lasted three months on the throne, only to march out of the gates of Jerusalem with his mother and servants to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar and perhaps spared the city a worse destiny in that fateful year 597 BC 2 Kings 24:12 and as pharaoh nico before him nebuchadnezzar assumed the role of kingmaker and placed his own vassal puppet on jerusalem's throne zedekiah youngest son of josiah even as Nico had deposed Jehoahaz, son of Josiah in 609 BC, and installed his own lackey in Jerusalem, namely Jehoiakim, also son of Josiah. But in 587 BC, Zedekiah tried the deja vu ploy of Jehoiakim. He too trusted Egypt to support him, this time counting on Pharaoh Hophra, counting on Egypt to support him in throwing off and rebelling against the yoke of Babylon. For Nebuchadnezzar, it was three strikes and you're out. Jerusalem delenda, Jerusalem must be destroyed. Her temple plundered, her kings and nobles captive, her beauty turned to ashes, fiery black ashes of a raging inferno, reducing the once glorious city to rubble. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become a widow. She weeps bitterly at night and has no one to comfort her. Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. Is it nothing to you? Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. Tonight, we turn our faces to the future. Through the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar and the visions of Daniel, we shall see what God hath wrought to Babylon and her national Gentile successors. And we shall at the same time turn our faces to the fifth monarchy, a supernatural kingdom. And to one like unto the Son of Man, who will rule the elect out of all nations, Jew and Gentile, the Israel of God of the end of the age. The Son of Man, who will rule his elect saints in a kingdom which will never Pass away. Daniel chapter seven is exegetical of Daniel chapter two. <clears throat> the word exegetical means to give a further explanation of, and so <clears throat> we notice the parallels or the symmetry, which is obvious between chapter two and chapter seven, and yet we obviously notice some slight differences. Will it be animal or mineral? It will, in fact, be both, mineral and animal. And so, as you notice, the parallels, we've lined them up in uh, parallel columns to compare chapter 2 and chapter 7 as we look at the imagery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the second chapter, the imagery of Daniel's vision in the seventh chapter, And notice how in the history of the Christian church there has been a traditional understanding of this imagery, a liberal interpretation of this imagery, the most crucial prophetic interpretation over against a reform view, the dispensational interpretation of this imagery. Keep in mind that as we note the exegetical character of Daniel 7, we are going to note that there will be a recapitulation of Daniel 2 in Daniel 7, but a recapitulation on the basis of, shall we use the analogy of the Hebrew poetic idiom. I have explained this to many of you before, but in Hebrew poetry where you have a bicolon or that is you have two lines Of a poem, uh, particularly in the Psalms or in the Proverbs, you have colon line A and colon line B. The relationship between the two lines is often what is A and in parallel or symmetry and what is more than A, B. And the recapitulation of A in B is not merely a duplication. It is an addition. We have the same pattern occurring here in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. What is a Daniel 2 and what is more than a Daniel 7 with expansion, with elaboration, with additions. So we notice the similarity or the symmetry or the parallelism between the two chapters but we also observe that chapter 7 gives us some additional material that chapter 2 does not provide. Now, as we run our eyes down the columns, we will notice that we have a descending paradigm in both chapter 2 and chapter 7. We start with Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the image of gold, And from gold, which is the most precious of metals, we descend to silver, then to bronze, and to iron, iron mixed with clay. The same is true in chapter 7. We have a descending paradigm from the lion descending to the bear, to the leopard, and to the indescribable beast, the dreadful beast. Both of those paradigms completed By a supernatural appearance, a supernatural kingdom, stone cut out of a mountain without hands, and a supernatural being, a son of man in chapter 7. Now, I have given you an illustration from the early church fathers of the traditional interpretation of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, You'll notice at the bottom of the first page of your handout a citation from Hippolytus of Rome. This is, incidentally, the earliest extant Christian commentary on the Bible. It doesn't mean that there weren't others written before this, but they have not survived. We know of no other extant commentary Uh, on the Bible or any book of the Bible than this one by Hippolytus who lived in Rome sometime between 170 and 236 A.D. And you will notice that <clears throat> this early church father uh, is uh, he's a Christian church father is summarizing the meaning of Daniel 2 and 7 in accordance with the traditional identification that I provided in the column above. You will also notice that that is true of the citation from Jerome. Now, Jerome is one of the most famous of the ancient uh, church fathers. He is the translator of the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin. Uh, That translation is known as the Vulgate because it was made in the vulgar tongue of the uh, Roman people and was therefore uh, capable of being read by anyone who was schooled in Latin (coughs) And, uh, and Jerome did this in order to make the Bible uh, available to uh, people throughout the Roman Empire of his day. He is a fifth century figure. He even traveled to Bethlehem in order to sit at the feet of Jewish rabbis to learn Hebrew. He is the first patristic individual as a church, first church father to actually learn biblical Hebrew, and he did it so that he could translate from the Hebrew into the Latin accurately. Now, you have an extended uh, citation in your handout from Jerome, but it follows the very same outline of the shorter one from Hippolytus who preceded him. My point is that from uh, at least the second century on, Christian interpreters in many instances are following the traditional identification for the meaning of the images in Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7. So returning then to that uh, traditional column, the first identification of the gold, Im- uh, the gold metal and the lion uh, animal is Babylon, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now, the identification of the silver imagery and the bear-like animal is Medo-Persia. That is, the Medes and the Persian in their alliance to overcome the Babylonian Empire and to displace them with what became known as simply the Persian Empire, but actually was actually the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, the third image, the bronze And then the leopard, which are corresponding, they're parallel, uh, corresponds to Greek, the Greek empire, the rise of Alexander the Great, of course. And finally, the iron, the iron mixed with clay and the dreadful beast is representative of Rome. And one of the reasons that the iron here is significant is that wherever uh, Rome marched, uh, she marched with uh, an army uh, led by a standard bearer, and the standard uh, was on an iron pole. And if you've ever watched the movie Ben-Hur, if you haven't, shame on you, it's an excellent film. But you'll notice in the opening scene where Masala is mo- marching into uh, Bethlehem or Nazareth rather uh, the army this the uh, soldier in front has the iron standard of Rome with the SPQR symbol on it Senatus Populus Que Romanum which means the Senate and the people of Rome in Latin but at any rate it was that iron standard that was indica- indicative of Rome's advance and her imperial might and so iron is associated with Rome uh, for uh, uh, a number of reasons now, the fifth monarchy, of course, is the kingdom of Christ. It is a supernatural kingdom it is the stone cut out of the mountain without hands indicates in chapter 2. And in chapter 7, the description of the coming of the Son of Man associated with the climax of the appearance of the four great world powers. All right that's a traditional interpretation of the meaning of the imagery or the symbolism in the two parallel columns, the dream vision, the dream and the vision of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the vision of Daniel. Now the liberals, liberal bible interpreters, what I call liberal fundamentalists, the liberal higher critic fundamentalists. Uh, will agree that the gold and the lion does uh, comport with Babylon. But when it comes to the silver, they break up the Medo-Persian alliance or the Medo-Persian empire. They say that the silver applies to media and the bronze applies to Persia, which then means that the iron and the clay applies to Greece and the stone or cut out of the uh, mountain without hands in chapter 2, uh, does not apply to the kingdom of Christ. It applies to the Maccabean age, the era of Judas Maccabeus about 164 B.C. Now, is there anyone who can conjure or fathom why the liberals would, th- would think that the uh, fourth empire is Greece, and split the second and third into two, Media and Persia. Does the liberal believe that any part of the book of Daniel is prophecy? Why? Why? because it's too accurate. That would be a miracle, and they don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in miracles. They do not believe in supernatural uh, events. Uh, And so, uh, when do the liberals believe the book was written? Back to you, Robert. Long after the fact. So when? When? During the, during the Maccabean age, it have to be written after all of this happened, so it have to be written during the Maccabean period. Therefore, you see, Greece has to be the fourth kingdom, because the writer doesn't know anything beyond that. He doesn't know anything about the coming of Christ. He doesn't know anything about the fifth monarchy being a supernatural monarchy. Therefore, has to be reduced to uh, a natural explanation of historical events. So the, the person that wrote the book of Daniel is not a 6th century B.C. figure. He's a 2nd century B.C. figure because, of course, he didn't know all of this until it had actually happened. All right, now notice that the uh, fifth uh, monarchy under the liberal view, even if you interpret it as the, as the kingdom which the Son of Man brings, is an earthly kingdom of God. It is a this-worldly utopia. And for those of you that know uh, liberal churches and liberal individuals, uh, liberal theological individuals, they are reaching, they are working not for the conversion of souls per se, they are working for a better world, for a utopian world. They believe they're going to bring heaven on earth. Now they've been kind of, uh, Uh, snake bit by that, but in the 19th century, that was their great clarion call, fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man, and we're going to make the world safe for democracy, and you know we're going to have peace on earth. So the liberal view, both theological and political, is it's going to achieve an earthly utopia, not an earthly millennium, an earthly utopia, and so consequently this imagery here is about a perfect world, a perfect global village, if you will. Now that's the goal. You just have to have the right political party to do it and spend enough money to accomplish it or go into enough debt to accomplish it. Anyway, any questions about that basic outline until we come to dispensations, Robert? So then for the liberal there, then Daniel, has, uh, there's no future kingdom that Daniel is speaking of? No. No. The only future kingdom that he's envisioning is kind of like a golden age of the extension of the Maccabean revolt against the Seleucids, which we'll talk about in future weeks. Now it's an earthly ideal. So then, doesn't it just make it a dead book for them? I mean, what would be useful for reading Daniel for them? Oh, to apply it today. Okay, so like there was a kind of golden age in the Maccabeans then, now we have to have a golden age today. So we'll use the book of Daniel in order to promote our own political, socioeconomic, golden age theory. Let's apply to Solinsky. Okay, now the dispensational column is a probably the dominant interpretation of the book of Daniel in the evangelical world worldwide. Not just America, not just J. Vernon McGee on the radio, uh, not just uh, Donald J. Barnhouse, uh, not just your usual uh, uh, prophecies preacher or speaker. Dispensationalism uh, since the 19th century has absolutely overrun Protestant interpretation of prophecy, particularly Book of Daniel. So the dominant Interpretation of the book of Daniel in conservative or Bible-believing circles is dispensationalism. <clears throat> All right, so what does dispensationalism teach about <clears throat> Daniel 2 and Daniel 7? Well, they agree with the traditional view that the gold head and the lion represent Babylon. They also agree that the silver uh, part of the image and the bear represent the Medo-Persian Empire. Third, they agree that the bronze part and the leopard uh, are Alexander the Great's Greek empire. But now we come to the distinctive aspect of dispensationalism, which is number four. The kingdom of iron, or iron mixed with clay, parallel to the dreadful beast in chapter 7, is the Roman Empire, at least in chapter 2, up to verse 41, but it is also from verse 41 of chapter 2 and all of chapter 7, verse 8 and following, a revived Roman Empire. <clears throat> what do the dispensationalists say? They're saying that the fourth monarchy is <clears throat> going to appear in two phases. Phase 1 is the historic Roman Empire that ended in 476 AD. But there's going to become, in the future, a revived Roman Empire. We can say Roman Empire Phase 2. And that revived Phase 2 Roman Empire is going to appear as the staging ground for the millennium. For the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. For the dispensationalist <clears throat> believes that there is going to be a literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus in Jerusalem uh, with uh, a rebuilt millennial temple uh, with extending his iron scepter uh, over the nations and a period of earthly universal peace. Now, you will notice that there is a similarity between the liberal view of a future perfect world, a perfect utopian society, and the dispensational millenarian kingdom. There are two kinds of millenarianism, that is, uh, two kinds of views that see a future millennium for Jesus in Jerusalem. There is dispensational premillennialism, which is pre-tribulation premillennialism, and there is historic premillennialism, or post-tribulation premillennialism. Both of them believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. The difference between pre-trib and post-trib is that the church will be raptured out of the world in the any-moment rapture in the pre-tribulation or dispensational view, whereas in the post-tribulational view, the church goes through the tribulation before the millennium is staged. Now, in both cases, whether it's pre-trib, pre-mill, or post-trib, pre-mill, It's premill. Jesus is going to live on the earth for a thousand years. He's going to rule the world as a political king for a thousand years. And you will notice that this view is very similar to the liberal view of a kind of future earthly utopia. Many premillennials will say the world has to get it right. Jesus is going to come back and show the world how to get it right. So he's actually going to be a ruler, a governor, a king on the earth in order to show us how to get our political ducks in a row. But that is a this-worldly, a this-worldly millennium is a this-worldly kingdom, and it is not eternal. It is not an eternal kingdom. It is only a thousand years long. A thousand years is an eternity. Eternity has no time. So the millennium is not eternity. In other words, the millennium is short of heaven. The millennium is short of heaven. In other words, what the dispensationalists and premillennialists are doing is they're interjecting between now and the future of eternal kingdom of heaven, an earthly utopia, an earthly perfect world, with Jesus sitting in it, not at the right hand of glory, on high. Now keep that in mind as you think about what dispensationalism and premillennialism are doing with biblical prophecy. We'll say a couple more things uh, later on. But understand they are going to fit a gap between the end of the Roman Empire in 476 AD and the future appearance of a revived Roman Empire. They're going to stick a gap in between that period from 476 to 2011 and on beyond to whenever this revived Roman Empire appears. They're going to stick a hiatus in there in the book of Daniel between verses 41 and 42 of chapter 2, and they're going to look at Daniel 7, 8, and following as referring to this future revived Roman Empire. In other words, they're going to make that fit their millennial paradigm. All right, now, the succession of the world empires is given there on your first sheet, and you have maps which uh, show the extent of the Babylonian Empire. <clears throat> you will notice that it consists of the Mesopotamian Uh, crescent, that is the fertile crescent from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean Sea through the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. That was the extent of the Babylonian Empire with uh, some slight qualification. Your second map is the map of the Persian Empire. And there you will notice that the extent is far greater. It extends into asia Minor. Or the kingdom of Lydia and Cilicia. It also has a large section of Egypt and Parthia all the way to India on the east. Your third map is a map of the conquest of Alexander the Great. One of the most remarkable military campaigns in history. He crossed over on the upper left hand side of your map from Macedonia, he crossed over the Hellespont in three hundred twenty three, three hundred thirty three, and made his way through Asia Minor, down the coast of Palestine to Egypt, where he established the famous city of Alexandria, naming it for himself. He didn't have an ego, did he? No. <clears throat> and then so he marched from there into uh, Mesopotamia, and you can see uh, at that little, uh, place where there's a clash of swords, Gagamila, he defeated Darius III, who was the last, uh, Persian empire, emperor, and, uh, conquered the uh, Persian world. Then he marched through the Empire of Persia all the way to India. From India he went to Pakistan, and from Pakistan to Afghanistan, where his Troops rebelled. Uh, You may notice on the map there on the right hand side the city of Bucephalia. Bucephalia. Does anyone know why it's called Bucephalia? Kristen? Isn't it after his horse? Yes. What's his horse's name? Bucephalus. All you fans of the black stallion, why does a little boy get the little horse Bucephalus from his father? Swing and pouring up the ground. Oh, you don't know that movie either? Too bad. See, you learn a little bit of ancient history. Okay, Bucephalus. Alexander's horse that he rode all the way on his conquest to India. Bucephalus was killed at that battle. Actually died as a result of wounds he received at that battle. And Alexander buried him there and named the city for him. And the fourth map you have is the map of the Roman Empire. The extent of Rome, as you can see, includes something none of the three previous kingdoms had ever conquered, namely Europe and uh, Britannia, as well as all of North Africa. All right, uh, there is a uh, rough uh, outline of uh, the geography of these empires. Uh, You'll notice that I stopped the, on page one of your handout, I stopped stopped the uh, Kingdom of Greece and its derivatives with 146 B.C. And you may wonder, since last week I went to 63 B.C. for Pompey's conquest of Palestine for the coming of the Roman Empire. Why do I have 146 B.C. there? Because of Scipio... Emilianus Africanus, and the end of the Third Punic War. Now are there any of the homeschool children there that can tell me what the Punic Wars are? And why were they called Punic? <coughs> and who is Scipio Africanus? All right, can anybody tell me what the Punic Wars were? And what does the word Punic mean? Who is Scipio Africanus, Kristen? Um, He's an explorer. No, he's not an explorer. He's a general. The Punic Wars are the wars fought between Rome and Carthage. Carthage across from Italy on the coast of North Africa. And Carthage was the home of the Punic, or in Latin, the Phoenicians. And so the uh, Romans called them Punics. There are three Punic Wars. The most famous is the second. Why? Because Hannibal crossed the Alps with his elephants, that's why. He came down over the top of the northern Italian Alps into the central valley of Italy and nearly destroyed the Roman Empire from within. If he hadn't been virtually starved to death, he would have succeeded. All right, so... When Scipio Africanus, actually Scipio Aemilianus Africanus, not to be confused with Scipio Africanus Major, who did defeat Hannibal in the Second Punic War, but this Scipio Africanus, who uh, finally uh, conquers Carthage once and for all in 146, does so at the encouragement of the great Roman orator Cato, who said, Cartago Carthage must be destroyed. And when <clears throat> Scipio took Carthage, he destroyed it, burned it, leveled it, took every person alive left in the city, sold them into slavery, and then having turned the city into ash and rubble, what did he do? he sowed the city site with salt so that nothing would ever grow there again. Well, something did grow there again. Actually, Carthage was rebuilt, and Augustine in the uh, 4th century uh, was actually a teacher in Carthage for a while. But that's the reason that uh, we say 146 for the end of the Greek dominance because from 146 BC on, Rome is controlling the maneuvers in the Mediterranean world. Now, she's not directly intervening, but nonetheless, she is starting to show her muscle. And eventually, she will conquer Palestine in 63 B.C. She will conquer Egypt in 31 B.C. with the death of Anthony and Cleopatra. She will continue to move until 476 A.D. Well, 410 A.D., 410 to the first sack of Rome by Alaric and then 455 the sack of rome by the vandals and then 476 AD is the final end of the roman empire because that's the time when the last roman empire roman emperor rather was deposed from the throne and and the visigoths took over all right now the fifth kingdom the fifth monarchy is of course the kingdom of christ and the kingdom of heaven All right, any questions about uh, the geography, the history, the imagery, the hermeneutics? We will say a little more about the hermeneutics as we look at the details of chapter 7. Yes, David.
1: I mentioned this last time. I'm amazed that Alexander was able to wage uh, such a uh, geographically immense campaign any army has to worry about outrunning its supply lines. And I, I, he must have had to not only requisition uh, material from the areas in conquered, but also must have had to requisition people to join the army to make up for those who were casualties.
0: Yes. Uh, uh, Alexander was trained by whom? who was his teacher anyone aristotle. aristotle correct so he was no dummy and not only was he a great military strategist the macedonian phalanx was what decimated every army in front of him but he was smart enough to know that if he was going to take his army thousands of miles hundreds of miles away from uh, their home base in macedonia and greece he needed a supply line, so he did not perform a scorched earth policy when he went to. It was not Sherman marching through Georgia. You know, he's going to make sure there's enough material and food behind him in order to supply this bevy of soldiers and to keep them happy until ten years later they finally did rebel against him in India and said, "We're going home, whether you're going with us or not." <clears throat> Any other questions? Yes. Neil, right? That's right. Yes. How, how big was uh, uh, that army? Ah, you've got me there. Uh, uh, several thousand, maybe twenty, thirty, fifty thousand. 50,000, I don't really know. But when he crossed over the Hellespont, he had a lot of men under arms already.
1: Because when, we, when you read the Old Testament about some of those wars, they, they seem to, uh, you know, just such an abundance of uh, soldiers that that number even sounds small to me.
0: Yes? That would be in the of yes, it's, 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 well, I don't know that it's in the hundreds of thousands, but, uh, when, when you look at ancient military warfare, what do men do in the ancient world? They go to war. That's basically what, uh, a man is raised to do, or to defend his country. And so consequently, you have thousands of people in your society that are trained and armed and ready to go to war as soon as the king says, we're going to war. All right, now, <clears throat> turning to chapter 7 and looking at some of the details in this chapter, we want to note this exegetical paradigm that is chapter 7 is duplicating or replicating chapter 2 but is also expanding upon the imagery of chapter 2 and beginning with verse 4 you will notice the added element the lion as an animal corresponds to the gold as the head of the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But in addition to this lion, we notice that this lion has the wings of an eagle. Now, why the additional embellishment here? The lion is the blank of beasts. King King of beasts. The eagle is the king of the air, the king of the birds. Virtually every culture which has an eagle, whether it's the African eagle, whether it's the Asian eagle, whether it's the American eagle, that's the king of the birds of the air. So notice the embellishment here is to reinforce the primacy of the Babylonian Empire. Now, This lion has the heart or a human mind or a human heart as the margin of the New American Standard reads. Why this additional image of a lion with a man's heart or a man's mind? Keep in mind that this is ep of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 because he and Babylon are represented by the gold head. What happens to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4? In Daniel chapter 3, we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into the fiery furnace, right? In Daniel chapter 5, we have Belshazzar's feast. Daniel chapter 6, we have Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 is all prophecy. Chapter 1 was Daniel getting captured. Daniel 2 is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. What's in Daniel 4? Robert? He becomes a beast. Nebuchadnezzar, a man, is turned into a beast. Or he's reduced to the uh, grovelling of a beast. All right. Now the point then of this image here, this lion is given the heart of a man is to mirror what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. A man given the heart of a beast, or giving the demeanor of a beast. And so this mirror reflection reinforces, not only the uh, Babylonian head of gold, but Nebuchadnezzar himself, who was the crown of that head, even as Daniel says, you, O king, are the head of gold. All right, now, the second beast in verse 5, which is a bear, the second beast is raised up on one side. Now, of course, bears have two sides. If a bear is laying on the ground and it's raised up on one side, then the other side of the bear is kind of up off the ground. If you've ever seen a big grizzly, as I've seen, raised up on one side, then you, you can see the image itself. Laying right out alongside of a highway in, uh, in the, uh, Banff National Park in Canada years ago. But at any rate, why is this additional detail here in chapter seven, which we don't have in chapter two, why is this additional detail found here? You catch the image. You see the picture? You've got a big bear. Laying on one side and then raising up the other side of his body. Like, like you would be, you know, doing your leg lift exercises or something. Why? Well, because this beast is a composite being. It's a composite animal. It has two sides. What are they? Medes and the Persians. And which one's greater? The Persian, because it comes up last and it's higher than the other. All right. So this composite character of this bear is an indication of the twofold nature of the Medo-Persian empire. And the fact that it's raised up on one side. The the raised-up side is higher than the side that's on the ground that is the ascendancy of Persia over the Medes, even in the Medo-Persian alliance. Now, in this bear's mouth, it has three ribs. Okay, it has spare ribs for dinner. Now, these three ribs obviously represent three kingdoms that have been devoured by the Medo-Persian Empire. Well, what's one of them? That should be easy. Babylon. Babylon what year? Um, what year did the, ba- but the Persians capture or take over the Babylonian Empire? 539, 539 B.C. Now, before that... Before Cyrus had conquered Babylon in 539, uh, Belshazzar's Feast, Chapter 5, before that, Cyrus had actually marched west through Babylon to Asia Minor. And if you'll take your second map, we can see where he marched. All right, now he's marching from Ecbatana or further east, and he's going to cross over the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, uh, perhaps somewhere around Gogamila, and then go west. <clears throat> he's going to go all the way to Lydia and to the capital of Lydia, which is Sardis. Where have you heard about Sardis? Book of Revelation. Book of Revelation. Why?
1: One of the
0: cities. One of the how many? Seven. One seven. of the seven cities of the churches of Asia Minor, Revelation two and three. In fact, it is in Revelation three, one to six. Now, in that Revelation three passage, Jesus warns the city of Sardis that he will come like a thief. Why does he say that? Robert, unexpected. why does he say that? <laughs> because Cyrus had come like a thief to Sardis in attacking Lydia hundreds of years before. And who was he attacking in Sardis? Who was the king of Sardis when Cyrus laid siege to the capital of Lydia? Croesus. Rich as Croesus. You heard that phrase? Spelled C R O E S S U S Rich as Croesus. Why are you rich as Croesus? Why was Croesus rich? Everything he touched turned to gold. No, that's Midas That's another individual. Croesus was the first man in history to mint gold coins. And some of them have been discovered. So all of you people that are hoarding gold these days, you have Croesus to thank for it. Okay. Croesus was extremely rich, very rich. And the Lydian Empire is the successive empire in Asia Minor to the Hittites. Who's the most famous Hittite in the Bible? Because Hittites appear in the Old Testament. Who's the most famous Hittite in the Bible? Marie? Who's the most famous Hittite? Goliath. Who? Goliath. Goliath is a Philistine. Nice try. No cigar, but you wouldn't want a cigar anyway. Uh, who's the most famous Hittite in the Bible? Kristen? Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. Husband of Bathsheba well how does this guy get from look where Lydia is look at where the Hittites are way up there in Asia Minor modern day Turkey how does he get all the way down to Jerusalem huh what's this guy Uriah doing all the way down there you got an idea Neil? he was a soldier he's a soldier but he's a Hittite soldier what's he doing in David's army did he get
1: conscripted
0: not conscripted what's the other option you're on the right track, what's the other option? volunteer? No, not he didn't I no, didn't really volunteer. <laughs> Robert? converted? what? converted? Yeah, I think so, but that's not what brings him to the army. Mercenary. He's a mercenary. That's exactly right. He's a mercenary. Keep in mind that uh, trained soldiers moved around the ancient world and earned their money by fighting for other armies. And Uriah is one who came from the Hittites. Probably. know I, I can't say this for sure, but it's very likely that he came to Palestine to hire himself out in David's mighty band. His band of 400. Okay, or rather, his 30 mighty men. All right. Now, um, this kingdom, the Hittite kingdom, extremely powerful in the second millennium B.C., that is 1000 B.C. and before, But it eventually crumbled. It crumbled because of the rise of the so-called Neo-Babylonian, Neo-Assyrian Empire. Nonetheless, what was left in the West was this Lydian uh, 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 empire, this Lydian kingdom. And Croesus was king with his capital in Sardis, and he was filthy rich. I mean, by modern-day estimates, he was worth billions, billions upon billions, because of all the gold that he amassed. Alright, so Cyrus is marching across Babylon. Okay, 547 BC. This is before he captures Babylon in 539 BC. His first conquest, Cyrus's first conquest, the first conquest, the first rib in the mouth of the bear. The first rib is the kingdom of Lydia. Conquered in 547 B.C. by a siege. A siege of the city of Sardis, which was built on a high mountain bluff. And Croesus was no dummy. He had built an apparently impregnable fortress. Until one of Cyrus's soldiers came like a thief in the night. And climbed up the back wall. The back cliff unguarded and like the old Trojan horse story, let his buddies in and they conquered Lydia. So the image in Revelation 3 that Jesus uses, lest I come to you like a thief, lest I come to you unexpected, is based upon this story of Cyrus conquering Lydia in 547-46 B.C. This is one of the ribs in the mouth of the bear. All right, we got two out of three. Babylon, 539. Lydia, 547. What's the third rib? Egypt. Egypt is right. What did every Mesopotamian empire want? They lusted after Egypt. They wanted the wealth of Egypt. And so, Persia attacks Egypt, but not Cyrus. Not Cyrus the Great. Rather, Cyrus's son. Who is Cyrus the Great's son? Does anyone know? Cambyses. Cambyses succeeded his father and reigned from 530 to 522 B.C. In 525 B.C., he invaded Egypt and he took on The Sate dynasty that we mentioned last week. Now, Cambyses didn't rule very long because he died as a result of one of his campaigns. But nonetheless, this is the third rib in the mouth of the bear. Any questions about the uh, second image, the image of the bear, uh, or anything uh, about uh, anything to uh, up to this point. You all with me so far? More or less? All right. Verse 6, chapter 7. Now comes a leopard that has four wings and four heads. Now this repeated number 4. This is in addition to the bronze Metal image of chapter two, so it's an elaborate, it's an, ex- an exegetical elaboration. So we're being told something more about this third monarchy, this third kingdom. What is this third kingdom? We've learned already that it is Greece and Alexander the Great, so why this four image? Mike? No, he actually only had one. Well, one legitimate one. Who knows how many illegitimate ones he had. All right. Um, yes, yeah, David?
1: Wasn't Alexander's uh, empire broken up into four parts?
0: What did Alexander say when he was on his deathbed? He was asked when he was on his deathbed, to whom do you leave your kingdom? And he said... Whom can take it? To the strongest. (laughs) And so the conflict broke out between his four generals. All right, now, uh, the four generals are Ptolemy, spelled P-T, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. Okay, we're going to talk a lot more about these individuals later on, but right now, To get down who these four are, Ptolemy, who is the king of Egypt. Seleucus, S-E-L-E-U-C-U-S. Seleucus, who will be the king of Syria and Palestine and most of Mesopotamia. Number three, Cassander, who would be king of Greece. And finally, Lysimachus, who would be king of Thrace. Now, if you take your fourth map, <clears throat> map number four, which is the Roman Empire, you can actually see where Thrace was in the ancient world. <clears throat> if you can find Asia Minor, just look north, or if you know where Greece is, just look northeast. You see Thraceae. That's Thrace, that's ancient Thrace, modern day Bulgaria. So, when Alexander died in 323 B.C., his kingdom was divided up amongst four of his generals. Those generals entered into a furious series of wars to see who would actually be the king of the hill. Now, We are going to dig into that when we look at chapter 8 and following. But nonetheless, for our purposes tonight, we just get the idea that Out of this leopard is going to come four successive kingdoms, and that brings us to verse seven. Are the four wings and the four heads the same? They're synonymous. It's it's the image of the fourfold division of his of his empire. That brings us to verse seven, and the iron image particularly the iron teeth in this dreadful beast, which takes us back to the iron imagery in chapter 2. You'll notice the word strong in verse 7, which is also the very same Hebrew word as the word strong associated with this fourth monarchy in chapter 2, verse 40 and 42. And you'll notice the word crush here in verse 7. And that word crush also appears in chapter 2, verse 40. So we are talking about the very same image of empire here in uh, verse 7 of chapter 7. So we're talking about the Roman Empire in Daniel 7, verse 7. Now we'll take our break and we'll come back and we'll start to dig in a little bit to uh, the ten horns in this image And the little horn of verse eight in chapter seven. Any questions before we uh, take our break? All right, enjoy stretching your legs. Again, I remind you we will not meet next week. (coughs) There is another uh, special event scheduled for this building uh, next uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, so we will not be meeting. (coughs) And uh, we will resume with Daniel chapter 8, the week following. I think the date is May 5th. So keep in mind you get next week off. It's like your spring break. Or my spring break. Yes, Cheryl? Are we going to go to Florida? Are we going to go to Florida? (laughs) Are you buying? (laughs) All right, turning now back to chapter 7, verse 7, and the image of the ten horns on this terrible or indescribable beast. We note that a beast with ten horns is unusual because usually a beast has two horns. Consequently, the number ten here is indicative of a surpassing power or strength in this beast. It does not necessarily refer to ten specific kingdoms or kings. It is indicative of the great power of this indescribable fourth kingdom. Now, horn in scripture does mean strength or power. The easiest way for you to see that uh, in your English Bible is to look up 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. I don't want you to do it now, just make a note of it. And in the prayer of Hannah, you remember Hannah, uh, who was the mother of Samuel, in that prayer in the first 10 verses of 1 Samuel 2, she's asking God to give her, having asked God to give her a child, she's rejoicing in the fact that she's been blessed uh, with a son. And in the 10th verse, she uses in this A-B parallel the word horn and strength. And so you can see that they are apexegetical, that is, they are parallel to one another. It's the easiest verse where you can see how that strange word horn, he lifts up his horn, you know, how does a guy lift up his horn? It's the idea of his strength and power. And that's what's behind this image here. Now, uh, the liberals interpret this verse, uh, not to refer to the Roman Empire. As You notice back on your first uh, page of your handout tonight, the liberal interpretation is that this uh, fourth beast is Greece. So the ten horns are the derivative kingdoms of Greece, not only the four generals that we talked about, but also other successive uh, kings, particularly the kings of the Ptolemaic Empire, the Ptolemaic Egyptian Empire, and the Seleucid or the Syrian Mesopotamian Empire. Now that's predicated on the fact that of course uh, the Bible is that this the chapter is written uh, in the Maccabean period. So I'm dismissing that. I don't agree with that. I want you to understand how they interpret these uh ten horns. Now that brings us to the dispensational view of these ten horns. And uh, as I've already indicated, uh, dispensationalism looks at chapter 2, beginning at verse 41, and chapter 7, here at verse 7, slightly differently. So this is a place where we actually need to look at the text. So let's go back to chapter 2 for a moment. And we're looking at the description of the uh, uh, iron fourth kingdom. And in verse 41... Of Daniel 2, we read that the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron will be a divided kingdom. Now it is this verse that the dispensationalists take very literally and say that this is a divided kingdom in two phases, namely the Roman Empire number one, that is the Roman Empire that is already behind us in history, came to an end in 476 A.D., and the future Roman Empire, which is described in verses 42 through 44 in Daniel 2. All right, so I want you to understand what the dispensationalist interpretation does. It agrees that the fourth monarchy in Daniel 2 is the Roman Empire. However, it's only the Roman Empire that we know up to verse 41. In verse 42, 43, and 44, the dispensationalist says this is the future revived Roman Empire. It is the appearance of the future empire of Rome in its renewed form that will signal the coming of the millennium of Christ. In other words, this revived Roman Empire must appear on the stage of human history before the millennium can occur. And this is one text, one proof text for the dispensational interpretation of that point of view. Now, if we turn over to chapter 7, keeping in mind that we've split the Roman Empire into two phases. Phase 1, history of the Roman Empire past. Phase 2, history of the Roman Empire future that is yet to come. In chapter 7, what we have here, according to the dispensationalists, is... All of the future revived Roman Empire, and the ten horns represent ten uh, either kings or ten presidents or ten uh, sources of power in this revived Roman Empire, which is uh, going to come in the future. All right, between uh, uh, Roman Empire one, phase one, and Roman Empire, phase two is a gap. It is the gap in the prophetic time clock. In other words, all prophecy stopped with the end of Roman Empire I. And we are in a period in which no Old Testament prophecy uh, describes. Okay? Which means that for the dispensationalist, if we argue that we're in the church age, According to the dispensationalist hermeneutic, the church is never prophesied in the Old Testament. Now that may take you by surprise, but nonetheless that's what dispensationalism says. The church age is a filling up of the gap between the Old Testament prophecy for what's going to happen to the Jews under the Roman Empire 1. And what's going to happen to the Jews under the revived Roman Empire too, when the Jews will once again get a chance to accept the gospel of the literal earthly kingdom of Jesus at his, uh, near his return? In between is the church age that fills in this gap, it has nothing to do with the prophecies of the future in the Old Testament. Okay? What is dispensationalism doing? Dispensationalism is driving a rigid distinction between Israel and the church. And whatever the Old Testament says is going to happen to Israel never happens to the church. The church cannot be an aspect of what the Old Testament prophets say is going to happen to Israel. What happens to Israel according to prophecy must happen to Israel in history. If it doesn't happen to Israel in history, then we put a gap in its place until it can occur. And it will occur in the future. And so we'll quarry all that, that stone in Indiana and we'll put it in warehouses and we'll be ready for Jesus' return and we'll ship it all over there to build the Millennial Temple. Oh, you think that's a joke. It's not a joke. It's there. It's waiting. You can get on the radio and listen to preachers tell you to send in your money so that you can actually have your name inscribed in one of the
1: bricks.
0: (laughs) No, but you see, you want your name on the millennial temple bricks. All right, now, this is humorous in a way, but this is serious, because if you're serious about building the temple that Jesus is going to minister at, or be a part of, or at least down the street from, then, of course, you're going to send your money to quarry the stone to have it ready to go over there whenever Jesus miraculously destroys the Dome of the Rock, the mosque that's there, and builds the Millennial Temple. There are warehouses full of this stuff, ready to roll as soon as the tribulation is over. Okay, now... The point here is that the dispensational uh, hermeneutic will not allow anything that has to do with the Israel of the Old Testament to mean the fulfillment of the Israel of God of the New Testament, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6.16. Paul uses a phrase in Galatians 6.16, namely the phrase Israel of God, and he does not mean Jews. He does not mean Israel according to the flesh. In the epistle to the Galatians, he's making a point about not meaning Jews according to the flesh. So that when he uses that phrase at the end of his letter in Galatians 6.16, when he's been talking about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. And he uses that phrase Israel of God, who's he talking about? He's talking about the spiritual Israel. He's talking about the descendants of Abraham by faith. He's talking about those who are sons of God, sons and daughters of God, through justifying faith in Jesus Christ. You are the Israel of God. Paul is using an Old Testament term to refer to a New Testament reality. And that's only one place where the New Testament does it. When Jesus says in his first sermon, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's talking about the kingdom the Old Testament prophets predicted. He's not talking about some future millennial kingdom which applies only to the Jews. And because the Jews rejected him when they crucified him on Good Friday, therefore, he stopped the prophetic clock. And he'll give them a second chance. He'll start the prophetic clock starting again when the revived Roman Empire is crushed at the Battle of Armageddon. With all due respect, this is nonsense. This is literalistic rubbish. This is not interpreting Scripture by Scripture. This is not allowing the New Testament writers to use Old Testament prophetic texts and tell you this is that. This Old Testament prophetic text, which I'm using in the New Testament, the Israel of God, Galatians 16, is talking about that Old Testament future prophecy. In other words, if you want to understand how to interpret prophecy, read the New Testament writers explanation of prophetic texts. And to a man, they apply those texts to Christ and to the church of Christ and to the Israel of God of the end of the age. That's what the New Testament writers are doing with those Old Testament texts. Well, not so for dispensationalism, which finds this ten-horn future revived Roman Empire as a precursor to the millennium. Which brings us to verse 8. And the little horn, which comes up out of this fourth monarchy. Now, this little horn is interpreted in verse 20, 21, and 22 of chapter 7. All right, the little horn in verse 20, we read, This horn came up before which three of them fell, three of the previous ten fell. Namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Alright, now notice what's happened here. Verse 8 is interpreted by verses 20 to 22 in this very same chapter. The sequence of verses 20 to 22 is as follows. The little horn oppresses the saints of God, verse 21. The Ancient of Days comes, verse 22. Judgment is set, verse 22. The saints possess the kingdom, verse 22. Now, since verses 20 to 22 are an expansion upon verse 8, notice what we have. Verse 21, in which we're told that the little horn oppresses the saints of God goes back to verse 8. That's what the little horn is doing when its mouth is uttering great boasts. The Ancient of Days comes. Notice verse 9. I looked until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Judgment is set, verse 22. Notice verses 9 and 10. The thrones are set up, And the books are opened, and standing before him are myriads upon myriads. So that verse 22 is actually explaining to us what is going on, verses 21 and 22 are explaining to us what is going on in verses 8, 9, and 10. Finally, the saints possess the kingdom in verse 22. Notice verse 14. And a dominion was given to these people, an everlasting dominion, a kingdom which cannot be destroyed. Saints possess a kingdom which cannot be destroyed. Verse 22 is expanding upon verse 14. The only thing that is missing from verses 20 to 22 is the appearance of the Son of Man. Verse 13. But the sequence is coordinated enough that the Son of Man could be, could, can be understood to be implied in the paradigm. Notice what we have. We have a sequence of the little horn oppressing the saints, the Ancient of Days coming to set up his judgment seat, and the saints then possessing the kingdom. And in the process of describing that, we also have the appearance of the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven in verse 13 who's the little horn? On the basis of that sequence, who's the little horn? The little horn is the Antichrist of the end of the age. What we have here then is a described or detailed exegetical discussion of what is going to happen when the Son of Man returns. Verse 13. And consistent or co-terminus or co-ordinate with the return of the Son of Man is the oppression of the saints of God by this little horn who is the man of sin, the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians 2.3. He is the one who is going to oppress the church. And the Ancient of Days will set his judgment throne. In other words, the Ancient of Days will bring the rage of the Antichrist to an end by bringing judgment upon the whole cosmos. And his judgment seat will be unfolded and the books will be opened. And the Son of Man will appear with the clouds of glory and the saints who will stand before that judgment seat will possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. The little horn in the context then of the replication or recapitulation of the fourth empire, the fourth monarchy, is a telescoping of that principle, that principle of enmity in that empire. Enmity against Christ, initially in his incarnation and crucifixion. Enmity against Christ before his second coming for judgment, son of man appearing in the crowds of glory. That same principle which has already occurred in the history of redemption, in the crucifixion of Jesus in 33 A.D., plus or minus, is also going to be reprised, It's going to be recapitulated prior to the second coming of Christ at the end of the age. This little horn, then, is a projection of the definitive man of lawlessness, man of sin, or Antichrist. Now, the liberals, once again, Do not believe that this little horn is the Antichrist. Since this book was written during the Maccabean era, who do liberals think the little horn is? What's his name? Antiochus or something? I'm trying to think of it. You've got it. Say it again, Robert. Antiochus. 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 It's pronounced, Antiochus is alright, but Antiochus, pronounced Antiochus. It's Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who is the king of Syria, the king of the Seleucids, who, uh, who, uh, des- desecrates the temple in 167 BC. Alright, we're gonna get into that in detail later on. But the liberals see this as a, uh, reflection, that is, looking back to the desecration that Antiochus IV brought to the temple in Jerusalem in 167. Right. any questions about that? Yes, Robert? A little horn uh, makes it sound like it's going to be uh, less of a force than the bigger horns already mentioned. Uh, what about that? <clears throat> We're going to see this little horn reprise itself in chapter 8. So your, your question is going to be answered in terms of an exegetical elaboration upon the power of this little horn as we move on in, uh, in the unfolding of the drama. Verse 9, the thrones, chapter 7, verse 9. These thrones, according to the dispensational interpretation, are the judgment of the great white throne, the post-tribulation judgment that sets the stage for the millennium. The millennium is described in verses 13 and 14. Jesus comes as the Son of Man to establish an earthly thousand-year reign. All right, now, verse 14. To him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." The word for everlasting here, in the Aramaic text, and this is chapter 7, is the end of the Aramaic portion of Daniel, which goes from chapter 2 to chapter 7. The rest of the book is in Hebrew. But the Aramaic word here is alam. Alam. It is equal to the Hebrew word olam. Now, in your English Bible, this word, particularly in the Psalms, is translated forever. That's obviously a synonym of everlasting, which is a translation that we have here. Can anyone give me another synonym for everlasting? Eternal. Eternal. Alright, <clears throat> that's what the text says. The text uses the Aramaic or equivalent to the Hebrew word for eternal, everlasting, forever. Is a millennium eternal? Is a millennium, is a thousand year reign, is a thousand year period eternal? Eternal? Is it everlasting? No. Is it forever? No. It is not. So, we come back to something Gerhardus Voss pointed out almost a hundred years ago. When we look at Old Testament prophecy, we must come to grips with what he called the eternity feature. The eternity feature of Old Testament prophecy. Can any thousand year millennium satisfy that feature? This is an everlasting kingdom. It's right there. It's right in front of you. So what do the dispensationalists do then with this word everlasting or eternal or forever or alam or olam? What do they do with it? They retranslate it, read their commentaries. What do they say everlasting means in Daniel 7 verse 14? It means, I quote one, a long time. Well, a thousand years is a long time. That is true. But it is not what the text says. This is what the text says. If your Bible says in your English translation that you have in front of you, everlasting, eternal, forever, it is an accurate translation of the original word inspired by the Holy Spirit in the text. The inspired work in the text does not mean a long time. It means without time. No time. Eternal. These saints are going into a kingdom which has no end. No time. It is a timeless kingdom. It is not a long-time kingdom. It is an everlasting kingdom. Or do you think that when the Son of Man appears, and if you're alive, you appear before Him, He's going to take you into a temporal kingdom? A kingdom that is bound by time and space. It's not what the text says. And so the dispensationalist has to perform this terpsichore in order to make it fit his hermeneutic. Rather than make his hermeneutic fit the text. And say, I submit my mind to the inspired Word of God and say, whatever this kingdom is, in Daniel 7:14, it is an everlasting kingdom and no millennium is ever going to be everlasting. I give up my millennium. It's gone. I crucify it with the beggarly elements of the former fundamentalistic hermeneutic. Now, this is serious business. This is serious business, because these are the people that are saying that we have to interpret the Bible literally. And here we have a literal word in the Bible, in the inspired Aramaic text of the Bible, and they are not interpreting it literally. They are interpreting it in consistency with their system and making it fit. They are not reading the text, as Voss reminds us paying attention to the eternity feature of prophecy. Wallace's observation is absolutely brilliant. And it'll save you from going down the premillennial, whether it's dispensational or post-tribulation, it'll save you from going down the millenarian path. That when you read your Old Testament Bible, whether it's Ezekiel, whether it's Isaiah, whether it's Daniel, whether it's Zechariah, when you read your Old Testament prophecies and you see that word everlasting and eternal in there, you're going to understand that it refers to heaven. It doesn't refer to a millennium on earth. It refers to the place where God is in his kingdom already and Jesus is at his right hand already. And that is the place that history is working towards. I'm not going to take any questions. I'm sorry because I need to move on quickly. So if you'll take the uh, kind of diagram that I've given you, Uh, this is a poor kind of schematic, but uh, nonetheless, I will take questions afterwards, but I do want to to, uh, finish up Comments on this uh, kind of schematic pattern. <clears throat> I've arranged <clears throat> the sequence between Daniel 2 and 7 in a somewhat schematic form. <clears throat> if you like to squeeze in a kind of giant arrow there with the four kingdoms uh, pointing towards the uh, prophetic uh, projection, And then do the same thing uh, with the world powers. Kind of a giant arrow uh, pointing towards the recapitulation. In schematic fashion, I'm trying to show you the line and the recapitulation of these two chapters. Along the line of redemptive history. So if you want to label that flat line, that horizontal line that's across the page, uh, just above 612 B.C. and so on, that's the line of redemptive history. Now, we start in 612 B.C. because that's when the Babylonian Empire, which is the first of the world kingdoms, the world powers, is displayed. And those four kingdoms, those four world powers, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, are the sequence down to the incarnation of Christ, which is what the cross at 33 AD indicates. The prophetic projection of those four kingdom world powers comes to its, shall we say, provisional realization in the crucifixion of Christ, particularly with his incarnation and his own preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember, that's what he said. He said, the kingdom of heaven is in. What kingdom was he talking about? He was talking about the kingdom the Old Testament prophets are projecting. This kingdom is at hand. It is now here. It is near at hand. It is present in history with me. All right, now, when we add chapter 7 to chapter 2, we notice that we have a recapitulation of these world powers. The world powers are reprised and recapitulated until Daniel 7, 13, the Son of Man appears. In other words, what we have is a rolling kind of telescoping telescoping recapitulation of what we've already seen in chapter 2, now in chapter 7, elaborated from the time of the incarnation, death and resurrection of Christ, until the Son of Man appears, until the second coming. After that, comes the eternal state. And you'll notice that my line ends before the eternal state because the eternal state is timeless. There is no time in the eternal state. All right, now that's the simple schematic of what is happening in this uh, <coughs> paradigmatic out, uh, ex, uh, exegetical recapitulation of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. We're going over the same ground from 612 B.C. to 33 A.D. in Christ's crucifixion. That is Daniel 2. Then from 33 A.D. until he comes again, question mark, time, future. And we're going over a recapitulation of that. These world powers, just like the world powers of that previous era, those four kingdoms and their powerful uh, display of hostility to the Jews, their interface, their conflict, the Gentile conflict with the Jews, the clash between Jews and Gentiles in the Babylonian era, the Persian era, the Greek era, and the Roman era. That power is now going to be displayed not against Jew and Gentile, but against neither Jew nor Gentile. You get it? Neither Jew nor Gentile. Paul's Galatians 3 description of the church. Paul's indication of how the hostile powers of the world are now arrayed against the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ in its manifestation in the church. And that will continue. That will continue through this age between 33 A.D. and the second coming, what we can label the interadventual age. What does that mean? Interadventual. Between the advents. The first advent, Jesus born In Bethlehem, Jesus dies on the cross. That's the first advent. Second advent, Jesus comes again in glory. The parousia, as it's called in the New Testament. Okay, the time between the first and second advent, time between his incarnation, born of the Virgin Mary, time of his coming again as the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven, that's the interadventual era. That's the interadventual period. We're in the interadventual era right now which means we're living in the era of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus proclaimed. We're living in the era of the kingdom of God which Jesus proclaimed. The kingdom of God is at hand. We've been brought into that kingdom by grace, through faith, even now. Well, then what's going to happen at the end of the interadventual period when the Son of Man comes in glory? The curtain will be rung down on history consummately, finally, perfectly, completely. The full end of the world and time and space history. And the eternal state will appear. The eternal state will dawn. It's actually already there, but everyone in the cosmos is going to be caught up into it, whether for good or for ill, whether heaven or hell. All right, now, that's a simple outline. I haven't focused too much in this schematic, because I couldn't put all of this on the graph or on the the page, but I haven't focused too much on this Jew-Gentile interface. In that Old Testament phase, under the prophetic projection, we have a conflict between Israel and the Gentiles. The former people of God, or the protological Israel, the first Israel, the protological or original Israel, are in conflict with the Gentile powers. That's the feature of Daniel's prophecies before the incarnation, chapter 2. After the incarnation, chapter 7, this feature is elaborated and expanded upon the conflict between the neither Jew nor Gentile people of God and the pagan or unbelieving world. The conflict with the church. That is the semi-eschatological Israel. The protological Israel, Daniel 2. The semi-eschatological Israel, Daniel 7. And the consummate or perfectly eschatological Israel in the eternal state. How does Jesus fit into this? Jesus is the true Israel of God and we as the semi-eschatological Israel are united with him not with a millennium not with a future jewish kingdom not with an ethnic distinction according to the flesh but we are heirs and joint heirs even now with Christ The son of God who is the definitive Israel. After Jesus Israel, there is no more Israel according to the flesh. That's what Paul was talking about in Galatians. When he calls you who believe the Israel of God. How can he call you an Israel of God if you're not Jewish by genes? Because it's been surpassed. It's been displaced. It's passed away. Jesus came. He is the last Jew according to the flesh. And God does not deal with Jewish according to the flesh anymore after his son. He ratified that by destroying the temple in 70 AD. He put his staccato exclamation point. on: No more Israel according to the flesh. Your temple's gone. Your city's destroyed. It's burned in fire. It's all over. Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth. The transformation, the revolution in the mind of the Apostle Paul, the revolution in the mind of all the Apostles was to realize that they'd been weaned away from a nationalistic, ethnic Israel. It caused sparks to fly in that early church. And you see some of it in Acts and you see some of it in Galatians. But they got over it. And they got over it because they realized Jesus was not coming to save Jews only. He was coming to save men and women and children from every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven. And we're moving on to the glory of that arena where there is a multitude of elect from every nation, tribe, and tongue sitting before that throne of glory and singing the song of the Lamb. We are moving in the New Testament age not back to an Old Testament theocracy or a millennium. We are not going backwards in the history of redemption to some Jew according to the flesh, even if it's Jesus sitting upon a throne in Jerusalem. We're not going backwards. We're going forwards. We've left that behind. Jesus came to fulfill it. Yeah, but he, he didn't set up a throne in Jerusalem. He didn't, he didn't chase the Romans into the ocean. He, he didn't crack the heads of every other nation under the earth. No, he didn't. So doesn't that give you a clue as to what those prophecies were all about in the first place, huh? I said, are you too dumb to get it? It's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? If he didn't do it, then it wasn't meant to be done. You want to hold on to this world? You want to hold on to a millennium? You want to hold on to a Jewish kind of future? There are elect Jews who will come. But it is not going to be a Jewish kingdom. They rejected it. They rejected it. And God put His exclamation point upon that rejection by destroying their temple and their city. No, that doesn't mean that we can be anti-Semitic or look down our nose at the Jews anymore, and we look down our nose at any other group or religion. We plead with them for the mercy of God. Come to Christ. Please come to the Son of God, who is the true Israel. You want to be a Jew? Then come to Jesus by faith, and you will be an eschatological Jew. Well, we see then this turmoil of the world powers oppressing the people of God. In Daniel 2, the Old Testament people of God, the old Israel. In Daniel 7, the new Israel, that is, the church, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the eternal state where they cannot oppress them anymore and there's perfect peace, the fully eschatological Israel, which has been fully, perfectly, consummately, completely united to her bridegroom, for she is the bride of Christ in glory Forever and ever. An earthly millennium? Why would you trade an earthly millennium for heaven's eternal glory? You don't make any money on that kind of a deal. Come on, give it up. All right, now that leaves Daniel 5. As I said, I'll be happy to take questions uh, after I finish. you know, but by the you know, by the rule of the preacher, you know, we never know when to quit, but I've got ten more minutes. Daniel five. The old liberal view of the historicity of Belshazzar is that he never existed. In the nineteenth century it was extremely popular for liberal commentators to say that there was no person. A name Belshazzar known to any of the historical documents. The Greek historians did not know about him, and there was no record of him in any other source outside the Bible, so therefore the Bible must be wrong. Isn't that the liberal way? I mean, we talk about dispensational fundamentalists. What about liberal fundamentalists? We talk about dispensational literalists. What about liberal literalists? You want to really see literalists go to work? Read liberal commentaries. (laughs) Blows your mind. All right, so there's no Belshazzar up to 1860. And lo and behold, a so-called Neo-Babylonian tablet was discovered in which, surprise, surprise, there's the name Belshazzar right in the tablet. Now, I've quoted one of those for you in your handout. His name in cuneiform is Ushur which is transliterated into Belshazzar in Aramaic or Hebrew, and you have a reference to the uh, the occurrence of that. Then there is a very famous archaeological discovery called the Nabonidus Chronicle. Now, Nabonidus is the father of Belshazzar, and the Nabonidus Chronicle, which you can find online at that website, which I placed there uh, on your outline, the Nabonidus Chronicle uh, talks About the king Nabonidus and his prince. His prince who stayed in Akkad or in Babylon. The prince is obviously Belshazzar as Nabonidus is somewhere else uh, roaming around. Well, where is Nabonidus? Take your second map. Actually, I'm sorry, not your second map, your first map. Take your first map and look at the little inset in the center of the map where you see Baghdad, Medina, and Tema. It's pronounced Tema, T-E-I-M-A, in the Arabian Desert. Nabapalazur went to Tama. For ten years, we—I'm sorry, not Nabopolassar. That should be Nabonidus. I, I apologize as a misprint. I just caught it myself. <laughs> How many times did I proofread this thing? That should be Nabonidus, not Nabopolassar, on your outline. So please uh, correct that. And I better make a note to myself before this goes up on the internet. <laughs> he is king of Babylon from 553 to 539 B.C., but he's away in Tema from 553 or 52 to about 543 or 540. All right, he's in Tema. Who's in Babylon? Belshazzar, his son, the prince, as a co-regent. That is, an equally reigning king, only he's king in Babylon while his father is chief king in Tema in the Arabian Desert. That then explains the language in Daniel 5, 7, 16, and 29, where Belshazzar offers to make Daniel the third ruler of the kingdom if he can read the writing on the wall. Bible turns out to be right after all, because Nabonidus is king number one, Belshazzar is king number two, and Daniel would be king number three if he can read the handwriting on the wall. Now, in 1994, on a plateau in Edom, 200 feet above the ground, there is a carved figure that archaeologists have identified as King Nabonidus. It is there, dated to about 552 BC, when Nabonidus conducted a campaign against the Edomites. Now, on that map number one, Edom would be just to the left of the J in Transjordan. So Nabonidus had embarked upon a campaign marching from Babylon to Tama and from Tama to the border of Edom, and he had conquered the Edomites. We know that actually from the Babylonian Chronicle conquered the Edomites, and there is a statue or a figure carved into the side of a mountain which is identified as King Nabonidus. Then in 1992, 1999, two inscriptions were found in North Arabia. Now, North Arabia would be that little dotted stuff that's just above the inset of Baghdad. That would be the North Arabian Desert. And two of those inscriptions read Nabonidus, King of Babylon. Babylon. So, the name has been verified in the region in which he dwelt. Then, two years ago, 2009, a cuneiform fragment was found in the excavations of Tema in which the name Nabonidus is written. Is there any doubt about the fact that Nabonidus was in Tema? There is not. Nobody is arguing it anymore. The liberals have been embarrassed by this. And embarrassed by it because the Bible turns out to be true after all, praise God. Question, why is Nabonidus, king of Babylon, in Tema in the Arabian Desert? Why has he left the queen city of the Mesopotamian Crescent, the beautiful city of Babylon with its hanging gardens and its and wonderful running river for this oasis in the middle of the Arabian Desert? Why? Nobody really knows. But here are three suggestions. Number one. Tama is on the crossroads of the most lucrative caravan routes in the ancient world. That is, the caravan routes bringing trade and spices from South Arabia to Damascus. Is this economic imperialism? In other words, is Nabonidus at Tama because he wants to control the loot that he's skimming off the top of the caravan? Quite possibly. I like that suggestion because it comports with what we know about bureaucrats in general. All right, the second. You know a bureaucrat that won't skim something off if he can get away with it? Oh, well. All right. Now, the second suggestion is that this is a military move. That is, Nabonidus is in Tama because he wants to solidify his military hold on the Edomites, whom he has just conquered, and also on the North Arabian Desert tribes, which are troublesome. So he's there with his army and his entourage to, so to speak, keep them under his thumb. The third suggestion is religious. Nabonidus was a devotee of a god named Sin. Yes, spelled just like SIN. Okay, this god was the moon god of the Babylonian pantheon, and he was highly regarded in Haran. And you see Haran up there in your map uh, above. Uh, Syria, Haran, where uh, the <clears throat> Assyrian Empire in exile had retreated. Haran, to which Abraham had journeyed 2,000 years before Christ. And Abraham had come from Ur of the Chaldees. You see Ur there, just south of Babylonia or the sea lands on your map, uh, northwest of the Persian Gulf. Uh, <clears throat> Abraham had walked all the way from Ur up to Haran and then from Haran down to Palestine. Uh, Abraham was known to have worshipped other gods beyond the river. That is, beyond the Tigris and Euphrates. What, Euphrates. what other gods does he worship? Did he worship the moon god Sin? Because the moon god Sin in Babylonian culture goes all the way back to the 3rd millennium B.C. Quite possibly. But, at any rate, Abraham was an idolater when he was in Ur of the Chaldees, and God changed his heart and called him out and gave him the gift of faith and justification thereby. <clears throat> well, back to Nabonidus. He's a devotee of this Babylonian cult god Sin. But the chief god of Babylon isn't Sin. The chief god of Babylon is Marduk. And so he goes to the desert in order to worship his own god and leaves Babylon under the authority of his son to let Babylon worship their gods. So this is a religious move to the desert, possibly. Well then, why did he return to Babylon? Some scholars think he came back in 543. Some scholars think he came back in 540. Regardless of where you put the date, he came back to Babylon from Tema either four years or one year before Cyrus the Great conquers the city, takes over the city. Belshazzar dies at the end of his feast, Daniel chapter 5. Why did he come back? I think the most reasonable suggestion is that he was nervous about Cyrus's rattling his sword. Remember we mentioned that Cyrus had marched across Babylonia in 547-46 to conquer Lydia and to capture Croesus, the king of Sardis. He had walked right across Nabonidus' territory, right across Belshazzar's territory. He had marched his army right across and now with (coughs) Uh, Cyrus back in Persia, and the Medes and the Persians making up this alliance, uh, 545 539 B.C., is Nabonidus coming back to Babylon in order to attempt to shore up the defenses and protect his empire, quite possibly. It doesn't work, and Belshazzar's feast ends in the death of Belshazzar. The collapse of the Babylonian empire and the ascendancy of Cyrus the Great and the Medo-Persian Empire in a succession. Now, I've placed some uh, structural suggestions about the uh, arrangement of chapters uh, two, uh, chapters three, four, five, and six, in relationship to chapters two and seven. Those are there uh, just as uh, <clears throat> as my uh, suggestions as to what uh, kind of paradigms we have in terms of narrative structure here in chapters 3 to 6, and so they're there for uh, for your uh, consideration. Uh, now, I did uh, 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 <clears throat> overlook questions that uh, you may have had uh, uh, earlier, and it is past our time, so if any of you need to go, you're certainly excused, and you're free to go. Uh, blessings on you. I, have a, I hope you have a blessed Easter uh, holiday and celebration, and remember the risen Lord Jesus on Sunday. Uh, but I also take questions. I'll begin with you, David, because you had your hand up before.
1: There's conflation in prophecy. Obviously, Christ's first and second advents were conflated in the Old Testament. My question is: How do you discern um, when there is conflation, and it's not otherwise obvious? Uh, did uh, the uh, Jewish scholars prior to the first advent, did they ever discern that prophetic passages were conflated?
0: It's a very good question, David. Uh, as you know, Voss addresses himself to that question because you've read enough of uh, Voss's inaugural address and others uh, over the course of your years of sitting in here. Uh, <clears throat> the Key to conflation is the text itself. Uh, It is true that the Jewish rabbis and the um, second century B.C., uh, even the Qumran discussions do not see, shall we say, a a double advent of the Messiah. They see one single uh, uh, consummate uh, advent of the Messiah with the triumph of ethnic Jewish Israel in the offing. But the sequence here in Daniel 7, I think, indicates a very clear progression between the second chapter and the, shall we say, cataclysmic, or shall I say, more culminating critical uh, materials of the appearance of the Son of Man. It's this key of the Son of Man in verse 13, appearing in the clouds of glory, that uh, makes makes you realize that when Jesus takes that... uh, that name or that phrase upon his lips and describes himself as the Son of Man and talks about the future coming of the Son of Man. That what he is doing is saying, this Son of Man that I'm talking about in the future is that Son of Man prophecy in Daniel 7.13 and 14. So I think that the text explains itself or Scripture interprets itself. So I'm going to go answer the question of conflation on the basis of what the texts are doing. Another question? Uh, You said Nabonidus probably came back. There's a suggestion in uh, 542 or 540. Why did he he leave again? Uh, No, no. He survived the conquest of Babylon under Cyrus and was driven into exile east of Babylon into a place called Carmania. But Belshazzar died. And as the text uh, of Scripture indicates, even the uh, Persian chronicles indicate that, per, that uh, Belshazzar died. Uh, if Belshazzar was his son, why, why wasn't Nabonidus considered
1: kind of more the regent in the, in the biblical text, as opposed to Nabonidus? Yeah, it's because he
0: seizes the kingdom from the last uh, successor of Nebuchadnezzar, namely Labashi Marduk, if you look at your handout for last week, uh, he is the king before Nabonidus ascends, uh, and Nabonidus probably assassinated him. <clears throat> so he's the king on the hill, and then he's preserving the succession in his own son, his own crown prince son, uh, Belshazzar. Uh, <clears throat> and he kind of gives him the plum in some ways, namely he gives him Babylon, because he wants the plum in his estimation. Tama is a plum for him, he really liked the place you know maybe he maybe he was a, a snowbird you know he went to he went to Arizona in the winter because he liked that dry heat <coughs> it's good for my bones every once in a while too but uh, nonetheless it wasn't as if he wasn't happy where he went and he didn't like being there he stayed there for 10 years and and well there's some argument about whether he came back for the New Year's festival or not I'll leave that one aside but uh, nonetheless he stayed there for for 10 years before he re-entered the city uh and and then was conquered and uh, driven into exile. Anybody else before I give David uh, chance number two? David?
1: Uh, the handwriting on the wall, as I remember, it was many, many Tekla and farsi. Uh, was that what was written, or was it something else? I mean, why, why did Belshazzar not have a clue as to what it meant?
0: It's in Aramaic, number one. He didn't read Aramaic. Uh, Number two, nobody knows what it means. So the interpretation is the interpretation that Daniel gives. Um, It it doesn't make sense in Aramaic. It doesn't make sense in Hebrew. It doesn't make sense in any Northwest Semitic language that we know, at least anything we know to date. Um, So is it an an angelic tongue? Uh, No, I don't think so. But Daniel uh, is called to read it, and he reads it, translates it, and tells him what it means, and that's what it means. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is going to be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. But, it, it, but it, there is no, there's no semantic precedent for it. For it. The, the words are in the... I just looked at it uh, today before, uh, b- before I came tonight. I wanted to look at it in the Aramaic, and it's, it's there in the Aramaic, just as it is in many, many, take off, It's it's right there in the air, But there's no dictionary definitions for the words. All kinds of guesses, but nobody nobody knows. Daniel did, God did. Happy Easter. See you in two weeks. Remember, two weeks.